Welcome to Crown and Crozier. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. Whether you're a longstanding listener of Crown and Crozier or just checking us out for the first time, there's one thing for sure which I know we share in common. Each of us is going to die. In this episode, we turn attention to that uncomfortable, sometimes distressing topic of death. Our guest is Dr. Randall Smith, author of the recently published book, From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. Dr. Smith reminds us that a proper understanding of death and the next world makes for a life that is more full of truth, goodness, and beauty in this world. We also talk about what it means for the church and the state to do death well, which includes rejecting the allures peddled by transhumanists. Dr. Smith is a professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, the author of numerous books, and a regular contributor to The Catholic Thing, an online Catholic news and commentary forum. We'd be grateful if you could subscribe to Crown and Crozier wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating, or follow us on social media. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this installment of the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. Dr. Randall Smith, welcome to Crown and Crozier. Thanks very much for having me. So we're here to talk about your latest book, From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. To kick us off, uh, I want to ask, and this is, this is a question in, in good faith and in good spirit, rest assured, there's been a lot of ink spilt over the years, decades, centuries, millennia, on the topic of death. Any number of books are, are available out, out there on the subject. What prompted you? What inspired you to write this one? What, why, why did we need another book about death? <laughs> well, yeah, people, uh, it's a very funny thing about that, right? People write books about death, but we still live in a culture that wants to avoid the topic of death in important ways, right? I mean, in other words, we, we put it away from ourselves we lock it away in rooms, hospital rooms, and um, don't really want to uh, face it in big ways, right? We live in a culture that uh, oftentimes sort of seems devoted to the immor- what uh, Leon Cass, the great former chairman of the President's Council of Bioethics, calls the Immortality Project, where people want to live forever and ever and ever. So, you know, we have these interesting dichotomies in society. But to be honest, actually, it's, it's a very good question because it didn't really start out as a book on death. I, we, I say in the uh, acknowledgments of the book, when you're working on a book on death, people ask you, uh, everything okay? You know, you're trying to work through some problems or something? And the answer is no. It did start during COVID writing, actually. And I did sort of think, oh, well, people might be interested in this in this topic. But the truth is, the thinking about the what's really in the book went back years. And it was primarily thinking about the resurrection of the body. Right. So the, the Christian notion, the afterlife and the importance of understanding uh, the resurrection of the body as the key. Right. As something which is essential, which I think, again, among many Christians, we've forgotten that we believe in the resurrection of the body. I think a lot of people and I found this among students as well. Right. That when you say, well, we believe in the resurrection of the body, they say, well, you mean Jesus was resurrected. But and you go, no, no, there's a there's a general resurrection. I thought just after death, you just became like, you know, a spirit and you went became an angel. And it's like, no, no, you, angels are, are uh, something, something different. Uh, anyway, it, it primarily had been reflections about the nature of the resurrection of the body and trying to help people understand the importance and the significance of the resurrection of the body. And as I was coming to thinking about how I would make it into a book, I thought, well, it'd be important to compare it with other notions of the afterlife. And then I thought, well, and also just the notion of how you face death. So that was actually kind of a secondary thing. And it's it's mostly a book about the resurrection of the body and the Christian notion of the afterlife. And the other parts are ways of com- comparing. And um, also there are, I think, mistakes and problems that uh, are revealed by looking at these other notions of death in the afterlife that Christians are best to avoid. That's a great place to segue into a survey I'd like to do of some of the, the key themes and, 
and takeaways from the book, resurrection of the body as a real thing. Uh, I really enjoyed how you took the proverbial hammer and, and hit the audience over the head and, and made, made the point of emphasis, like, no, folks, this is a real thing. And I'm, I was struck by it in part because, I mean, we're recording this podcast just a few weeks uh, before Christmas and just a few days after the month of November. Of course, November, we spent a lot of time praying and celebrating uh, all saints, all souls. Uh, certainly in our family, we made a, a, bit of, a bit of more of an effort this time around to pray for the holy souls in purgatory. Among other things, it struck me that we've just come off this month where aiming to pray so fervently for the holy souls in purgatory that the place of the body in the larger picture and concept of the resurrection, I got to admit, it was totally lost. It just wasn't on our radar. Speak to that a little bit more. Why, why is it so important to, to shake fellow Catholics by the collar, I'll include myself in this, and remind us, no, the, the resurrection of the body is a real thing. It's not just Christ who's, whose body resurrected. It's going to be ours too. Well, there's a number of reasons, I, I think. It's important because the scriptures say it's important, right? I mean, in other words, I don't say it's important just because I think it's important. Theology at its best is faith-seeking understanding or an understanding of faith. And so it's part of the gospel message and the central part of the gospel message for St. Paul, for example. I think this is true of the gospel, other gospels as well. But it, the gospel for St. Paul is the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the good news. And as St. Paul says, look, if we're not resurrected, bodily resurrected, then our faith is, is empty, is in vain. So that fundamental part of our faith, we repeat it in the creed every week, and I believe in the resurrection of the body, right? So just so to be clear, it's important because the church says it's important, right? Mm. Does that make sense? And not because I said it was important. No, no, it is really, really quite the opposite. I, like everybody else, have, you know, like, oh, is that important? And when you start thinking about, well, but what's the creed of the church? What do we say we believe in? then we ought to take seriously this part of the creed. The creed isn't all that long. And one of the fundamental affirmations we make is that we believe in the resurrection of the body. So does that make sense? We start there. It's a central part of the creed. Then we go beyond it. I mean, to go to your question, which is a very good one, right? But just in November, it is interesting that we're recording this shortly after uh, of November, because I was thinking about this a lot in November. And part of the, the importance, it seems to me, about what Christ reveals to us in his resurrected body is that what we know about the afterlife is revealed to us most clearly, most fully in the person of the resurrected Christ. And what that reveals to us, among a number of things, but what that reveals to us is that after death, we will enjoy, we will be united with God and enjoy that glory, right? That eternal communion of love, which is shared between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being united in the body of Christ. But it also tells us something else important, it seems to me, which is that we will retain our personal identity. We are still the person. Jesus, after his death, and he appears in the upper room to the disciples, is still Jesus. The story could be that he says, well, the man Jesus is dead now, and the divine God, which was hiding inside him, has now been liberated. But that's not the story at all. It is still him. And all the resurrection accounts and appearances have him saying things and doing things which let people know that this is still Jesus. This isn't somebody else. This isn't some other person. So we're not to see, I think, revealed in this, that our return to God is somehow like the drop of water returning to the ocean. Because when the drop of water returns to the ocean, there's no more drop left, right? It just gets glommed into everything. And there are Eastern notions of the afterlife that believe that, right? That somehow you just become united again with the world spirit or with the fabric of the cosmos somehow. But then you're personal you as a person gone. I think notions of reincarnation have that view as well, right? I mean, you're reincarnated, but the you that's reincarnated isn't really you. You don't have any of your memories, any of your experiences, any of the wisdom you've gained, and most importantly, one might say, any of the relationships that you developed in life. I think most people, when they fear death, what they fear about death, one of the, the things they fear is losing the ones they love. And it seems to me that the communion of saints, right, that notion of the bodily resurrection and the communion of saints, what it tells us is we don't just shuck off this world. 
and go to some other world. Like heaven was, you know, leaving Houston and going to Cleveland or something like that. And so, you know, you're sad. Oh, my friends in Houston, I'm not going to see them. Not unless they come to Cleveland, you know, for those people who live in Cleveland. Yeah, like heaven. Anyway, but no, it's, I just think heaven's, it's not a question of that, right? It's not like that. You don't just shuck off this world. You are united to it in a more perfect way. Grace doesn't violate nature. It perfects it. That's the faith of the church. And it seems to me, again, like what we believe, what Catholics believe, particularly about the communion of saints, is not only that we can pray, and I think we can, right, for the the souls in purgatory, but they can pray for us. C.S. Lewis famously in Surprised by Joy talk about how after the death of his wife, Joy, he felt like he still had a deep relationship with her and that she was still very much present in his life. And I think there's a there's a deep truth in that, right? I think people who have a deep devotion to the saints will oftentimes feel as though they're very present in their lives. One of the tragedies, it seems to me, actually, about our loss of faith in the Eucharist, people sometimes ask me about this, it's very interesting. The loss of the faith in the Eucharist, meaning the loss of the faith that God, that Jesus is, the risen Christ is truly bodily present in the Eucharist, as present as he was during his life on earth, as present as he was to the 12, right, not the 12, like the 11, you know, the disciples, whoever was there in the upper room, when they touched him, right, that kind of presence, not merely a presence in memory, not merely a presence in some kind of general spirit, but really, truly present. And the problem with losing our faith in that is that, you know, then we don't believe anymore that our grandmother or grandfather, you know, our beloved faithful departed still are united to us. Then they're just gone, right? I mean, there are those scenes in movies where there's a, that romantic thing where somebody, you know, some poor little child says, where's mommy now? And somebody goes, well, she's still alive in your heart, right? In your memory. And that's sweet, but I don't think it's enough. Precisely because, right, and it could be a bit abusive in the sense that, well, if my grandmother's alive or my mother's alive in my memory, as I forget, right, I mean, again, one of the terrible things that people feel is that, like, I can't remember her face anymore. I don't remember, right? And you go days without thinking about that person necessarily because your life goes on and you have this feeling that I'm letting them die. The Christian faith is, no, you're not. No, no more than if you forget to call your mother for three days or four days. She's not gone, right? She's still there. And in fact, after death, people can be not less present to us, but even more present to us, not only next to us, but in us and around us and above us, praying more fervently and more directly to God. That, I think, is an important part of the Christian faith and its belief in the, in the resurrection of the body. Yeah, and that's very interesting, the connection you made there between a lack of understanding of the resurrection of the body being a parallel or a corollary to a lack of understanding in the real presence in the Eucharist. That, that That's fascinating, and I want to explore that further. I'm going to temporarily park that, though, because uh, one companion question around this whole discussion of the resurrection of the body, which I did want to get your thoughts on, you touch on it in some measure in the book, but the practice of cremation is becoming more common amongst Catholics. I I believe Dr. Scott Hahn has written a whole book on this topic. I wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, how is cremation an injustice or a violation or a departure from the proper Catholic understanding of death and the resurrection of the body? And, And what are the pitfalls? What are the risks? Well, look, the church does allow cremation. They don't encourage it. Right. And here's why. Again, if one had a relative who died in a war, a horrible bomb, I mean, this goes back a long way sure. to this understanding, right, where people might die at a house fire. Okay, look, every atom of your body, as it were, although, right, one gets a glorified body, God knows where every piece of you is, okay, in, in to put this crassly, all right, that's not exactly the way to put it, but there is no question about that. But in terms of those things which signify our faith, it is a much better thing, it seems to me, in all sorts of ways, to bury a body 
because it is a better signification of that faith and a better visual representation, to put it that way, right, of mm. the faith in the resurrection of the body. So one of the things, though, I suggest, which is as controversial a thing in the book as there is, actually, uh, for many bishops, is that we should restore the practice of churchyards, that is, cemeteries around churches. This would be a better image. I mean, people get buried, but they get buried in cemeteries which are, you know, out in the countryside somewhere, huge cemetery, etc. What you'd prefer, it seems to me, is that all the business of dealing with death should be brought back into the parish and the parish church. A simple casket, all the viewing, all the rosary, everything, not done in something called a funeral home, which is the la- la- furthest thing in the world from a home, that the community should come together. One of the things I talk about is the degree to which in the, in the medieval world, there were chants, Gregorian chants that people had, communities had, not only religious communities, but lay communities had, um, to accompany people in the process of dying. But along with that, it seems to me, then the person should be buried in the church, in the churchyard, I'm sorry, right? Or in the church. I mean, that's fine too, right? I mean, there's, there's, there are uh, examples of that. So that when people go to mass, they see their ancestors, they see where their grandmother or father or mother or the poor daughter who died young, where they are. And they can visualize and experience that connection with them. This would seem, seems to me to be a very much better way of dealing with death. I mean, again, then you don't have this horrible circumstance where death is something that's embarrassing, that we place away from it, that becomes kind of morbid in certain ways. If it was something we experienced all the time when we went to the mass, I think we'd be, uh, we went to church, right? I think we'd be much, much better off. And people would be much more consoled knowing that they can, you know, every time they go to mass, they can make a little visit to their grave of their grandmother and their father, etc. you know, their, their family. It would remind us better that we owe a gratitude. This is something which I think is important in November. We owe gratitude to those who came before us, who made our lives possible. And we should then pay that gratitude forward to the next generations. And I think it would be comforting to people to say, my parents are buried here. I've lived here. I've devoted myself to this community. And I know that I'm not going to be a horrible burden after I'm death. They'll just, my family, you know, my children and grandchildren will just put me here in this churchyard. I like how you capture that in your book under the tagline or the slogan, if you will, of doing death well. I thought that was a, a lovely turn of phrase and, and very intriguing and thought provoking, this whole concept of doing death well. As a church, we'll get to in a moment the role or the question of the state doing death well. But but as a church, are we doing death well? And some of the examples which you just cited fall under that umbrella or that concept of, of doing death well. Another example that you gave under this tagline is the, the idea or the practice, if you want to call it that, of dying in your own bed, dying at home. Um, and, and it struck me as well. I mean, you, you spoke just now about how a, a funeral home is, is not really a home. It prompted your book uh, prompted me to, to reflect on how when it comes to death, I mean, we've we seem to have outsourced a lot of stuff. It's like you you outsource the visitation to to a funeral home instead of your church or you might even outsource your place of death to a hospital or, or somewhere else. I mean, it seems more common that these days. For the typical person and for the typical typical Catholic, we just we almost make this assumption that I'm, I'm going to die in a hospital or in a long-term care facility, and it's diminishing this notion of the comfort and the beauty of dying in your own bed in your own home. Can you speak to that a little bit more and how that is part of the package of doing death well? Yeah, I it is a sad thing. Um, the people I have known who have died all wanted to die at home, and none of them did. None of them were able to, right? This is one of the great struggles we have in the contemporary world. I don't want to question medical science, its abilities, right? The goodwill of nurses and doctors who want to do things. And I think uh, people might write in and say, well, but the hospice movement is moving to, you know, help people stay at home. And I think that's true. I think that's all to the good, right? That this is what we should be moving to. But it's, it's, I might say just tragic when, again, everybody I know has wanted to die at home and no one I know has actually been able to mm-hmm. die 
at home. And that seems to me tragic. And similarly, the degree to which we then have this tendency to cut people off, like, oh, they're, they're dying. Don't, don't go by. Don't, don't talk to them. Don't see. So why, why would we, why would we do that? I, I did have a neighbor who didn't get to die at home, but he was in a, in a nice place near home. And he had memories actually of walking there when he and his wife first came to town. And so he's like, this is very comforting. And I happened to have in my house at the time, he was my next door neighbor, but he was now in a hospice kind of situation. And, um, all the uh, young graduate students who were living in my house with me and my wife would go over daily and uh, say prayers for him and be around him. And I remember Anthony once said, all these women around me, I've never experienced, right? You know, like <laughs> I, I'm in heaven or, you know, and of course, as he, as he diminished in his capacities and he went through the process of dying, right? I was very pleased that we were able to go by sort of all the time. I mean, even as he was less able to respond to us and to know that he was surrounded by all these young, beautiful women who were saying these prayers for him all dutifully. And the other story is uh, when I had this uh, woman in my house who played, who, who's actually doing the research on uh, medieval chant that was done for the dying. One of the uh, Nashville, well, a woman who had been in one of the Nashville Dominicans, but left, you know, and is married with children. She said, yes, in, in our house there, when somebody was dying, bell would go off and everybody in the community would come together in the room and out into the hallway and everyone would pray, wow. right, rosaries as the person died. And you think, again, there's a tremendous, not only for the person dying, but for the community to know that that's what they will face, that they will not face this alone, that the community will be there loving them, understanding praying every moment. Again, I've known other religious orders and uh, they have their own little cemetery. This is true at, at the University of Notre Dame, the Holy Cross Fathers have a cemetery. I think it's been very comforting to them again to see their the earlier members of their order buried in this cemetery and to know that's where I'll take my place next to them in community. The whole point here is I think that the whole process of death should be brought into the church. This is the church's ability this is what they do well. We've allowed the society to make it an autonomous, separate thing. We've allowed the society to individualize it, to medicalize it. And I think we need to bring it back where it belongs. In the last year or so, my wife's grandmother, she was confined to a, a long-term care facility during the pandemic. And here in Ontario, the, the lockdowns and the restrictions were rather on the severe side. And ultimately, my in-laws made the decision, you know, you know what, we're we're going to get her out of the long-term care facility. Long and short of it is uh, a few weeks later, she passed away in the comfort of her own bed, surrounded by family who was praying for her. And it struck all of us, you know, this, any other way for her to have died would have been an, an injustice and an ingratitude to her life, her sacrifice. You know, this is someone who came to North America from Holland after World War II and, and gave everything to their family and sacrificed so much. And, and anything less would have been an injustice. And Everyone was so grateful that that happened. Uh, and, and I thought it, it really resonated very well with with your tagline of doing death well. Yeah, and I, I've heard stories like this. I mean, just, I mean, again, people have reported, reported stories like this. And, and what it seems is, I mean, you think it's hard to know, right? I mean, for the person who's actually dying because they're, they're dying, right? But the community that comes together in those circumstances, so often they're like, we were so grateful. And you think, yeah. I, I once wrote an article saying, look, if you want to get people back involved with the church, you want people to like, you know, do death well, bring it back, have the community say, we take care of this and we will take care of you. And even people who aren't Catholic, if they come from states away for the burial, which is in the churchyard, et cetera, et cetera, and it's all taken care of, they will say, I don't know about these Catholics, but they took care of my grandmother and I am infinitely grateful to them for that. And that's the best thing you can do, it seems to me, in terms of bringing the community together, because it makes real something that can get far too dreamy and disembodied. Death is a messy business, and it's where the rubber hits the road, as St. Paul understands. And it's at the heart of the good news of the church. And if we're not preaching that, then we're spirits are going to be dying instead of just bodies. Amen. 
one drum that you really beat in the book is how a sound understanding of death and the afterlife actually makes for a more enriching life in this world, how it actually makes for a stronger commitment to justice and goodness in this physical world. I'm hoping you can speak to that a little bit more. I say, I teach a course called Christ and the Moral Life here at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. And I argue that what people think is true about the world that we live in will, to a large extent, determine the way that you live your life. If you think it's a dog-eat-dog world, well, that's just the way you'll live. Similarly, in the book, also, I think what you think is true about the nature of the human person will, to a large extent, determine the way you live your life. It sets the horizon of expectations that you live into. And that bar could be very low, that horizon could be very nearby, or it could be transcendent. So similarly, I argue in the book that it tends to be the case for people throughout history that they need some notion of the afterlife, or this life will seem meaningless. I mean, in other words, you learn, you study, you enter into relationships. And at the end, if it's just oblivion, nothingness, that seems to make this life meaningless. On the other hand, you don't want a notion of the afterlife. And I think a lot that's part of the early part of the book is most notions of the way we view death or views of the afterlife also make this life seem meaningless. But there are views of the afterlife. Um, it seems to me that are unworthy, right? I mean, if you had some idea about the afterlife where people were engaged in things that would be behavior which we would consider ignoble in this life, or if you had a notion of the afterlife which undermined the moral view that we hold in this life, this is one of the problems, for example, of not having a clear understanding of the resurrection of the body. We're increasingly a more Gnostic society and as my friend Carter Sneed says in his book on bioethics, right, a wonderful book, it is a section on forgetfulness of the body, that largely what we have is a society that kind of wants to put the body aside and, and forgets the importance of our embodiedness and the limitations that come along with that and what human nature is as an embodied being. And of course, John Paul II was one who tried to remind us of this repeatedly in his theology of the body and the importance of our embodiedness. And so if you have this notion of like, well, I just, you know, I just dispose of my body and go as a spirit somewhere else. And that's this kind of liberation, which, you know, is kind of a sort of neoplatonic, platonic view or a Gnostic view. Well, then what do you think is true about the human body in this life, right? I mean, it's just a shell Again, in our society, more and more people think, well, you we could just exchange bodies, you know, we could take our consciousness and, and embed it in some other body, which might be a fish, you know, could be a different gender, could whatever. And this would be meaningless. I mean, this well, would just be me. And I think this is a wrong way of thinking about it. This is also why I think it's important that we uh, focus on the resurrection of the body, because we don't want to have this kind of odd, unfortunate forgetfulness of the body in our society. Although, which correspond, I mean, which also coexists uncomfortably with people spending, I mean, sorry, putting too much emphasis on the body. It's an odd thing, right? Where people are totally worried about how their nose looks and getting Botox on their lips and, and you know, the latest diet and wrinkle creams, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, it's kind of like, well, I should just shed my body and, you know, bodies aren't important. It's a when you see those kind of bad dichotomies, you know you don't have a clear sense of, of what you should be thinking of, which is the body as something which is like a sacrament, right? Which is the, the instrument of God's love. Yeah, and that's a good segue into one of the other themes from your book, which is the, the proposition of transhumanism. And which as, yeah. which, as you just articulated so well, there's this schizophrenic contradiction at play in that proposition or in that concept of trying to divorce the body from our consciousness or thinking that there's this there's this fungibility of our consciousness that could be transported to other bodies or or substitute or substitute our body with a machine i'll be honest uh, when i picked up your book i had no anticipation that you might explore the topic of transhumanism and yet mm -hmm. i mean you, you devoted almost an entire chapter if not if not more to the topic why did you feel compelled to to tackle that issue well, A, it's something which is sort of on people's radar screens, and it's the modern version of the Immortality Project, right? Which, again, there's literature which goes back 
to the ancient Greek world, right? I mean, they faced up to the issue of death and makes sense to kind of say, well, if death is a bad thing, can't we avoid it? And so the desire for immortality is one that, again, you find ancient stories where people are wishing for this. Uh, what the wisdom of the ancients shows, however, is that this was always a very bad idea. Bad things happen to people. And the, the famous story of the of the Sibyl of Kume, who shows up in, in Virgil's Aeneid, who is a, um, a prophetess, she asked the gods for eternal life, which she was granted, but she forgot to ask for eternal youth. Mm. And so she just got older and older and more and more and more shriveled till uh, supposedly she was hung in a jar from uh, the roof of the cave where she had her home, you know, in, in Kume. And so at the beginning of uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, he has the lines from the Satyricon by Petronius, which says, and the young boys would tease her and say, Sybil, Sybil, what do you want? And the Sybil would reply, I want to die. Because this is a bad thing. Now, of course, we in the 20th century think, well, yes, those are all these weird superstitions and we think whatever. But now, as we move into the 21st century, people are somehow actually thinking that this this might be possible. Famously, Ray Kurzweil, who's a robotics guy, has said, yes, in our lifetimes, we will have eternal life or immortality. That's why the second part of the book is on immortality and why this is a bad idea. So death is both pictured in scriptures as always an evil. On the other hand, we don't want to devalue human life. And we don't want to simply say, well, death is okay. On the other hand, living forever is also has all sorts of major problems. So the transhumanist issue brings up another, a number of complicated issues about our embodiedness, number one, which is important. And we don't want to make that mistake. Like, oh, well, we just shuck a body or something and we go on. About issues of reincarnation in a way. And just in general, the, the whole question of would immortality be a good thing? Again, Adding a few more years to your life, sure, more time with your grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. Again, death is a darkness. Death is always pictured in the scriptures as something evil. And I understand that. I don't, I don't want to downplay it. I don't want to romanticize it. I, I want people to be able to face up to that fact. On the other hand, we also have to face up to, which I don't think the transhumanists do, not only our embodiedness, but the foolishness of thinking this way, right? In other words, you only can have new people if the old people move on, you can't have new growth unless exactly. the old growth is gone. And so if you want children and grandchildren and you want them to enjoy the lives of having children and grandchildren like you do, then we have to accept the reality of death, that the new life takes over. It's a hard thing. I mean, I, again, I'm not all excited about that in its own way, but you understand, yeah, you see the young people and you say, yeah, they need their shot. And if we all just lived on forever, two things would have to happen. There could be no procreation, right? We've got 8 billion people in the world. And if everybody lived forever, pretty soon there would be, you know, 800 billion people. So it can't happen, number one. And number two, again, to have new growth, you have to have the old growth. Uh, move on. And so in some ways, people should take that as a consolation. My life is moving on, but there are young people who are coming up. And to have them have a full life, I need to do what I can to give them what they need. And then they will become like me and they will need to give to their future generations what they need. Exactly. And I don't think it's exaggerating to say that the proposition and the, the push of the transhumanists should be taken seriously. I mean, there are just there are just a few things that come to mind for me. I was in the car the, a couple of weeks ago, listening to our national broadcaster interviewing someone who's involved in cryogenics, who is involved in a specific facility, a brick and mortar location in this country, in the project of freezing dead bodies with the prospect of bringing them back to life in the future, and they are seeking government support and funding for that effort. I mean, another example that comes to mind, I know the World Economic Forum gets a, gets a lot of attention in some corners, uh, but there is, there, there is a video online hiding in plain sight, one of the, one of the top advisors, uh, scientific advisors to the World Economic Forum, and a doctor in Israel named Dr. Yuval Harari, 
who, who talks about human beings becoming hackable and programmable animals. And there's this school of thought which he subscribes to and which I've also seen on, on government documents here, here in Canada talking about the future of biomedical convergence, the, the convergence of biology and the best of medical science with, an, with a view towards prolonging human life ideally indefinitely. So it, it seems to me that we should take this very seriously. And, and I think this is kind of a good pivot point into the imperative for the church to do death well given what our program is, is focused on here at Crown and Crozier, I also want to talk about the importance of the state doing death well. Why is it important, in your view, for the state to do death well? It's a similar sort of relationship between church and state that we would want for any major transition. I mean, if people are disturbed about what happens to marriage when the state decides it's under our control. They should be disturbed about what happens to death when it becomes under the state's control. I take it now that in Canada, with the euthanasia laws, that uh, I was just reading the other day, somebody sent me a thing where I guess the Canadian press is very happy that now with the euthanasia laws, there are more organs for transplant because more people are choosing to off themselves. Of course, this is a very, I mean, we should take one step back, I seems to me, and say, this is a very interesting development, isn't it? That we have on the one hand, this project to extend human life indefinitely. At the same time, we have these demands for suicide. Exactly. So it, in other words, you want to say, this is the kind of confusion that you get when the state isn't guided by the right sort of principles about human nature. Now, again, the state doesn't have to take a stand on the afterlife, but what the state should do is say to itself, this is beyond our pay grade. This is not a thing that we should enter into, right? And um, what we should do is demand natural death. One fundamental principle for us is that we will not kill. And beyond that, we would encourage churches to do what they do. Um, so one thing, for example, and this is in the wheelhouse of kind of what you're talking about, would be to say there are plenty of municipalities. When I when I talk about churchyards, and I once met a guy, I think he's probably retired now, he worked at a law school, uh, and I talked to him about the churchyard idea. And he said, oh, yes, well, there's uh, every time, and I told him every time I, I mentioned this, somebody goes, oh, well, there's the laws. You can't do that anymore. There's laws against that. You can't have downtown, you know, in-town churchyards anymore because they're all illegal. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, no, no, they do do that. But he said, but it's all, he says, I, he said, I go around and I fight court cases for um, churches that want to do this because they're, those laws are all absurd. And so people think that they're not allowed to do it or shouldn't do it, but that doesn't mean they can't really. And of course, there's no reason other than, right, embalming fluid and metal and whatever. But I mean, it's funny. People will say, well, human bodies, when they decay, I mean, that's sort of poisonous. The point is, like, I always think, wait a minute, creatures die all the time in nature. And somehow for centuries, this has been the case. And I haven't noticed this being a, a major problem. So one thing that uh, municipalities and governments could do is simply to say, yeah, you can have a churchyard. It's very funny that way, actually. I mean, this is not this is sort of the church, not the state thing. But I, I did have a guy who read something of mine and he went to his chancery office, the guy who deals with cemeteries. And he said, yeah, we'd like to have churchyards, et cetera, et cetera. And the guy there said, um, oh, no, no, no. Now, I don't know whether the bishop actually said this or thought this. But anyway, he said, no, no, no. The bishop doesn't want any any churchyards in, in churches because then it would make it impossible to close the parish. Um, <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, and, and, and I, I remember saying when he told me that, I was like, oh, this is very depressing. But then I thought it was funny. I thought if you let parishes know this was the case, then they might go right out like tomorrow and bury 10 people in the part of their parking lot, you know, like make it grass and say, no, we've got a cemetery here now. Um, as if to say to the bishop, we're putting down roots, okay? We mean to be here for the next 2,000 years. Like, you know, if you go to England and you see, you know, churches that were built during the year 1,000 or the year 900, they're still sitting there and they're still the churchyard. You can say, yep, we're here. 
We're staying, okay? Uh, we belong. We have a different sense of time. We are not one of those buildings that was built with a 30-year time, right? I mean, this tends to be the case. I once had a conversation with my friend Duncan Stroik, who builds beautiful, beautiful churches. He's an architect at Notre Dame. And uh, I said, yeah, well, Duncan, but you know, some of your churches, they're more expensive. He said, well, it depends on how you do the, the financing, how you think about it, right? If you build a church and you have to tear it down in 35 years, well, that costs a certain amount. But if you amortize the amount of money you spend and you build a church and it stays there for 800 years, well, that's a different expense. So anyway, again, it just seems to me that there were times, as far as the church building, and then we'll get to the cemeteries in a second. For example, uh, very famously in Savannah, Georgia, when it was first developed, they had squares, okay? They had a grid network, but they would reserve a space on each of the major grids for a church. Having that understanding that, oh, no, no, churches are going to be an important part of our urban fabric. Whereas now the idea that churches, I again, I have another friend who was doing uh, urban design. He was with his students and he said, OK, it's very important that we, you know, have in our urban grid, you know, however we sort of rethink this community, places for churches. And they were like, why would we do that? I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to us. That's a lost thing, right? Where you say, no, churches are very important. And the way they operate and the freedom to operate in the way they do is very, very important. And so, again, churches, places for them, places for churchyards. And uh, again, their people have had to fight for the right to, to die at home. I mean, hospice care has largely won that battle, but they had to really fight legally, right, to get people out of the hospital so that they could die at home. There's a lot of paperwork that tends to be the case. I don't know how it was with your grandmother but or mother-in-law, I'm sorry, whatever it was. But um, these are things the state should make possible and make easy for churches to do and not stand in their way because they think, well, but this is, you know, as a society, we have to, you know, control it in X, Y, and Z way. As I said, like euthanasia is just an example of the state taking over thinking that, oh, we know better and we can figure out how to deal with death. And I don't think we do. Yeah, well, I, I was struck when you were just making your remark there around death becoming seemingly yet another thing which the state is seeking to bring under its purview and control. And I couldn't help but ponder that there have been some essential things things in, uh, in our experience which the state brings under its control and then it seems to have the appetite to redefine. You think of marriage coming under state control and being redefined, life coming under state control and being redefined, and, and the, the push for death to come under state control. And as we spoke about in the context of transhumanism and other things, death itself being redefined and, and, and certainly in that vein, uh, the euphemism of, of dying with dignity and the whole notion of dignity being redefined. One of the passages in your book that I really loved was a definition or a presentation, a description of dignity as not just something we have or possess, but also something in accordance with which we must act. And I invite you to elaborate a little further on that, no on that notion. Yeah, again, dignity is um, not... This is, a, this is a problem, right? When you think of dignity as we do in a, in a kind of youth culture. And I think people might say, oh, don't go see your dying aunt or uncle or grandmother. You know, it, it's so undignified because we've so exalted physical beauty in certain ways. I mean, again, it's a funny thing, this, this thing where we don't understand the value of the body and then you overvalue it or you undervalue it. Mm. Whereas if you saw the body, again, as an instrument of God's love that goes through this process of aging, and it simply is the case, and that we are largely throughout our lives dependent in all sorts of ways, then we wouldn't insist on this foolish independence all the time. One of the hardest things in dealing with elderly parents or grandparents is getting them to accept help that they need and the confusion they have about, I should just somehow be independent, accept no help, 
look, people are dependent throughout their lives. This is why Alistair McIntyre's book, Dependent Rational Animals, is such an important book. The idea of human beings as being is part of the founding of like the North American fabric, right, through Locke and Hobbes, that we are somehow fundamentally autonomous individuals who only secondarily enter into some kind of social contract with others is demonstrably false because every one of those thinkers had a mother. Every one of those thinkers was born into the world dependent and only became a writer, a thinker, a person in government because they were raised by a family. Aristotle is much healthier this way in saying that we are fundamentally social, relational beings. Of course, Christianity ups the ante even more and understands that we are in the image of God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that is something that society should more and more come to respect, is our relational character. So that would be one thing we might say about this. And again, so the extent that the society brings its categories to bear on these matters, all they can see is how do we think about this political issue in terms of autonomous individuals as long as we can get their consent. And even there, of course, as we've seen in the Netherlands, you don't always have to get their consent because if you can show or if you can sort of presume, or in your view, the life is no longer has the kind of dignity that you want it to have, that somehow these are people who they can't walk anymore. They're, uh, you know, who would want to live this way? And then you can say, well, let's mercifully just cut off their lives. And, you know, I think that's a sad and be not where the state should be. The state should say all these people need to be cared for and churches, that's your job. And the churches should say, okay, that is our job. You're right. Lonely people out on the streets who don't have anybody, that's our job. That's what we do. We have to take on that obligation and responsibility. And then the state, your obligation is to leave us alone. Don't force us to do abortions and don't force us to have euthanasia, et cetera, et cetera. We'll take care of these people, but you you respect us and you respect our schools and you respect our teachers and you respect, you know, the way we want to form people because we want to form people who will grow up to be people who will care for the poor and the, the dependent and the elderly. And um, you're not raising people who would do that because precisely your the state is animated by a notion of autonomous individualism. Yeah. And, and I think that hits the nail on the head in terms of diagnosing I was going to say the roots, but perhaps the cause and the effect of the, the schizophrenia on the part of the state when it comes to death these days. I mean, you can put your finger on certain things that the state might do well when it comes to death, whether it's small things like giving the right of way in traffic to a, a funeral procession or, uh, sure. or bereavement leave uh, for workers, acknowledging that there's time here required to mourn and to grieve uh, and to bury um, but then on the flip side, just the topic of suicide itself, I think, puts the, the schizophrenia of the state on on full display here in Canada and, and other countries. And I'm sure it's coming uh, to a nation near you sometime soon. Uh, the notion of suicide by a medical agent of the state being permissible, acceptable, maybe even to be encouraged. Uh, but if there's a an epidemic of young people taking their lives or then that's something to be frowned upon or that's a cause for panic there's this real schizophrenia on display and, and i think one of the things i loved about your book was kind of capturing in a nutshell how in, in some ways this all kind of comes back to a lack of understanding of of our bodies and what it means for for, for us to have, have been promised a resurrection of the body by our lord we've covered a lot of ground but is there anything maybe we've left left untouched or how would you describe what you hope the, the takeaway is for your readers uh, w with your work? Let me start with takeaways. I, I hope that we've touched upon on the, on the conversation. I think we've touched upon everything that's essential. It's been very good. People still should buy the book and, and, and read it. But 
I, you know, I mean, I'm an author. I'm supposed to like, you know, yeah, but buy the book still. Anyway. Um, great stock and stuffer uh, for the, for the, yeah, no, exactly. Buy 10. They're, they're great gifts, gifts, you know, no, no, no. One thing we can say is again, look, I, I think it's important for people to understand that in terms of the, the themes that we've talked about, I, I really do think it's important to understand that the way people view the world, like why is this important? The way people view the world that they live in will to a large extent determine the way they live their lives and what they think is true about human nature and human flourishing will also to a large extent determine the way you live your life. So these things are not just sort of philosophical issues that, you know, I, I know I say to my students, I know like, you know, some of your parents, if we go home and say we were talking about the meaning of life, you know, what's true about human nature, they might say, oh yeah, I used to, you know, sit in my, ho my uh, dorm room and smoke pot and go, oh dude, what's the meaning of life? Yeah, no, I think it's more concrete than that. I really do think these things are crucial and why the church's view on this is so important. The takeaways from the book are, uh, I think, threefold. One is, again, the, the philosophical point, which is that, that you need some notion of the afterlife for this life to be meaningful, but you can't have a notion of the afterlife that makes this life meaningless. And that's the challenge we have to face. And that actually is a challenge I think is only met by the Christian notion of, of the resurrection of the body and the communion of saints for reasons I, I argue in the book. But the other uh, important takeaway, it seems to me, is simply that the whole business of dealing with death, I mean, I, I say in the beginning of the book, like, will this book help? And the answer is no. I hope it is consoling in certain ways and helps people. It's always better to understand the faith and the significance of the resurrection of the body, it seems to me, particularly in terms of not losing your connection with your loved ones in important ways. I think that would be consoling. But I say, but look, in the end, this is something I would argue that needs to happen. How do you deal with it? The answer, I think, is liturgically, right? You deal with it in the church. You deal with it in that context with that community, with that vision of the resurrection of the body. And so again, I argue that we have to restore the practices that helped people in the past, in uh, the early church, in the medieval world, and up through the modern period to deal with death as a community, as a church community. And we need to restore those practices, among which I think are music, chant, liturgical rituals, and churchyards. Um, we have a long tradition of being able to deal with this effectively, which isn't at odds, shouldn't be considered to be at odds with modern medicine, but we can't just simply let modern medicine sort of take over as though you could medicalize death somehow. And because look, every doctor knows that you get to a certain point and you're not trying to rehabilitate or heal anymore. You just have to comfort and modern medicine can do great things in helping to comfort physically. But beyond that, it seems to me, we as a church community have to do a much better job of understanding our own tradition and the riches of that tradition and um, living it out sacramentally. Again, living out sacramentally that thing which is central to our faith, which is the death and resurrection of Christ. Amen. Dr. Smith, we're going we're gonna to leave it there for today. This has been a very enriching conversation. I hope it has been for our listeners as well, to whom I would enthusiastically commend Dr. Smith's book, From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. Thanks so much again for being with us here today. Thank you for having me so much. Thanks, guys. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website, at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.